0: My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Dave Zirin. He's the sports editor at The the Nation magazine, and he's the author of 11 books on the politics of sports, including his newest, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. He's also a columnist for The Progressive and the host of The Edge of Sports podcast. This is a conversation that I've been really looking forward to for a number of reasons, and I really want to thank um, Dave for being on the show. Welcome to The Deep Dive.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to dive
0: with you. Oh, man, brother. This is um, this is one of my highlights. And when the rest of my boys hear that I had this conversation in all of my various like group chats of basketball, with the Olympics, with everything going on, they're going to be very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of folks around the country in group texts with me that are going to be really excited that we had a chance to talk today. I want to start off. Not just with talking about the book and the Kaepernick effect, but I think it's really important for people who are not who may not be as familiar with your work to get a sense for how critically you examine the intersections between sports and politics. So I want to give you an opportunity to really just give us an idea and a sense of, When and how you started to make those connections, and where do you see this going forward in the political moment that we're in right now?
1: Wow. Like Green Day said, 20 years has gone so fast. I mean, I've been doing this for a while at this point. For me, it really started in college when I learned about Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the basketball player for the Denver Nuggets, who made the private decision to not come out for the national anthem really a Kaepernick before Kaepernick in many respects. And frankly, there have been several Kaepernicks before Kaepernicks, people who protested during the anthem. But Mahmoud Abdul Raouf saw himself in that tradition, in that continuum. And he made this decision. He wasn't trying to make a big deal about it. But then a reporter came in to the locker room and said, why are you doing this? Don't you realize that flag is a symbol of freedom and democracy throughout the world? And Raouf said, well, it may be a symbol of freedom and democracy to some, but it's a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. And at that point, ESPN jumped on the story in the worst possible way. They were like, Raouf spits on the flag. Booyah. And I was following it really closely as a college student. It was fascinating to me. I was a huge sports fan. I was also really into politics, particularly politics that are critical of U.S. empire. And to see these strands come together was a revelation for me. And I remember hearing somebody on ESPN say, well, Raouf must see himself in the tradition of those athlete activists, like Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Muhammad Ali, Billy Jean King. And that phrase, athlete activist, kind of broke something in my brain. It's so interesting because in 2021, that phrase has become a cliche to some respect. But when I heard it, it was like something brand new, like like a present that was sent to me. And I opened it to find something wondrous and didn't know what it was. So these days, of course, someone would just go to Google and put in athlete activist and learn about this. But I didn't have that option because the technology hadn't been invented or if it had it certainly wasn't didn't hadn't trickled down to where i was so you know that meant i was in the basement of the library microfilm and microfiche all on my own you know i would try to integrate it into papers when i could but it was really my own course of study my own mission and you know it wasn't because i wanted some career writing about this i was just fascinated with the social movement implications of sports being a lever for social change That was more my focus. Like, how can we utilize this? People who see themselves as part of radical or resistance movements, how can we utilize sports as a arrow in our quiver? And that developed to the point, and I never thought of writing a column about it because I, you know, you look at your local newspapers at that time, this is, you know, early days of the internet. You don't think there's going to be a place to write about this stuff. You don't think that's going to exist anywhere. But the internet opened things up a little bit for me. And, but it, what it really started was I got a job on a newspaper in Prince George's County, Maryland, and sort of made a deal with the editor saying like, hey, can I have a little space to write 800 words about sports and politics? And in return, I'll do whatever. you know. I'll sweep the floors afterwards. I just want that space to explore this creatively. And my brother-in-law started putting the columns on the internet, and that got me both the job at The Nation and a book contract at Haymarket to write the book, What's My Name, Fool? So that's how I really got started into it. And then doing deep dives in the history is what really made the difference. I read a book that was really that really influenced my thinking by Mike Marcusy called Redemption Song, Muhammad Ali and the Spirit of the 1960s. And it was written with such a verve that it made me realize that sports writing that's critical doesn't have to be indecipherable because that's what I was finding. There was certainly academic writings about sports that I was finding, but I found them very difficult to penetrate. So here was something that showed me like how sports is utilized. It was like a handbook for me. And so I started applying that metric to other athletes, thinking about them through that Ali lens. And that's what I did. And in the first years, honestly, it was you know, it, it was it was a thin gruel writing about this stuff. I mean, writing about the history was cool. I got to become friends with folks like John Carlos, and I ended up doing his book, you know, the '68 Olympian who raised his fist, and you know, and started hanging out a lot in those circles of that older generation, and which was pretty cool, honestly. I mean, it was it was amazing to meet meet some folks like Bill Russell and Tommy Smith, and I mean, Harry, Doctor Harry Edwards, uh, Wyoming Atias. I mean, it was cool to meet those folks. But when writing about athletes in the present, it was a very thin gruel. There just weren't a lot of athletes who were doing that kind of work. The ones who did, I wrote about, make no mistake about it. But there wasn't a lot there. And that, of course, I think has changed so dramatically over the last, call it, nine years. And the reasons for that are, are we could talk about why it's changed. But to me, it's pretty obvious what's gone on. I mean, it's the, the advent of social media. It's the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement. And frankly, it's LeBron James. It's having one of the greatest athletes on earth be willing to step in political shoes, I think, has provided a kind of cover for other athletes to step forward. So that's the general story. I know that was a bit of a long answer, Dude,
0: but it's long just, answers it, are allowed.
1: Yeah, it's just to go around the horn, pardon the expression. <laughs> Cause you know, I've got a lot of issues with ESPN, especially these days. That that's the general state of affairs for me in my life. And so I've been doing this like 20 years and it's been at times incredibly frustrating at times, incredibly rewarding. And it's brought us together to do this podcast.
0: Yeah. I mean, movement work in however you find yourself on that spectrum, I think is often as you described it, it can be exhilarating and it can be incredibly frustrating. It can be emotional and psychological drain, but it can also have an incredible uplift. And I love that you started off this conversation with um, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who is in my notes, because I wanted to reference him as well, because in a similar way, I remember how his story was covered just generally in the press. And as a huge fan of Ali growing up, my moments of sort of radicalization are through things like Eyes on the Prize on PBS and an amazing documentary that is not as available as it should be. It's through hip hop. You know, I, I always say like, it takes a nation of millions in 1988 is one of the most seminal records of my life. It got me on the, on the road of, of it's sort of posters under-
1: in my basement.
0: Yeah. Understanding like the history, the politics, the social movements. And it was like you said, looking things up in books and libraries and microphone because there was no internet and, In 1988, for better or for worse. So, I want to connect all of that to, like you said, they were Kaepernick's. There were other Kaepernick's before Kaepernick's in the same way that there was a Jack Johnson before there was a Muhammad Ali. And though he might not have seen himself as an activist in the same way, I reference this in a larger context of sports as protests and sports as political movement, you know, Jack Johnson being the heavyweight champion in the world and crossing state lines with white women, trafficking in white women, as they said in those days, that those are social and political constructs in the same way that Muhammad Ali refusing the draft was a political movement and the athletes who rallied around him to support him. And so that entire tradition, it seems like every time we have these moments it's as if those other things never happened, right? So Kaepernick is contextually lost, even as people celebrate Muhammad Ali today, they celebrate Muhammad Ali and revile someone like Colin Kaepernick. Like, walk me through as someone who understands the history of these things, how that paradox can exist and how do forces like ESPN exacerbate it?
1: Oh, sure, I mean, the first question, I mean, is as old as sports in the United States, because, you know, as long as there have been sports, there has been a battle for inclusion and a battle for some form of equality or, for lack of a better term, a level playing field, because sports are created in the 19th century. And when I say sports, I mean organized sports for business under the tagline that this is America. This is the ultimate meritocracy, and the field is a reflection of that meritocracy. And if you're good enough, you can make it. There was only one problem, of course. Women were told not to play. Black people were told, form your own leagues, or but just stay out of our way. And so it immediately became something that was unequal at its very foundation and let alone LGBTQ people. I mean, that that wasn't even part of the conversation, but good, good luck if you wanted to play sports and be out at that time. So what there was an attempt to do from the very beginnings was a fight for access. And we've seen this in different forms with all groups who have found themselves in the yoke of oppression in the United States. You've seen this reflect itself in the world of sports as people have fought for access. But that also means for as long as there have been black athletes, And I'm specifically going to focus on black athletes here, although I could make similar arguments about other groups. For as long as there have been black athletes, there have been outspoken athletes. Because how can you not be outspoken if you're not being allowed access and inclusion to the very thing that you're so gifted at and good at and you want to make money at and all the rest of it? And also then, as long as there have been black athletes who have dared to speak out against the inequalities either in sports or the inequalities in the broader society, there has been a white supremacist trope that these athletes are spoiled, that these athletes should not be listened to, that these athletes should be grateful because they get paid to play a game. And that is old, tired, musty, and it's right out of the white supremacist playbook. It's right, I should, actually, you know what? That puts too small an angle on it. It's from the American playbook attacking the black athlete. That is as American as Apple pie. And you see that throughout the 20th century. The big names we know, Jack Johnson, Jackie Robinson, Joe Lewis, and the rules that Joe Lewis had to live by in order to avoid being um, you know made a pariah like Jack Johnson was. We could go into John Carlos and Tommy Smith, uh, go into athletes like Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. But in the midst of all those big names, as we lead up to people like LeBron James, Colin Kaepernick, Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, as we enter into all those names, I mean, we also have to realize that there are tons of people who've been forgotten. And this goes to your question about how we can celebrate Ali while decrying Kaepernick. I don't mean we, of course, but how the society can do that. And it's the same way that McDonald's can have a Martin Luther King commemorative cup. It's the same way all these right-wing Republicans can quote Dr. King as an argument against critical race theory. I mean, it's because when you have people who are as big and undeniable as Ali, at some point, or Dr. King for that example, at some point you can't erase them. You know, you can't pretend they didn't exist. So what do you do? You do what Mike Marcusy called extracting their political teeth. And that's certainly what they've tried to do with Dr. King. That's certainly what they have done with Muhammad Ali for decades. I mean, white America loved Ali once he lost the power of speech, as Jim Brown said. And such an observation has been repeated by many others because it's so self-evident and obvious. The Ali who was saying, God damn America, God damn white America, God damn the white man's money. You know, that's not the person who (laughs) was celebrated by George W. Bush in the White House, for example. Absolutely. So that's the general thing. I mean, there have been rebellious black athletes for over a century. Some get their political teeth extracted and are celebrated for reasons that are become very antiseptic. Others are thrown in the memory hole and forgotten. That's certainly what they tried to do with John Carlos and Tommy Smith. You know, they made them pariahs. They couldn't get work. There was an effort just to throw him down the memory hole. So that's how they can celebrate Ali and Colin Kaepernick. And I think Jamel Hill said it best when she said in 20 years, the NFL is going to have an award named after Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's the way these things operate. And, you know, on the Kaepernick
0: side, I'm, I'm going to jump to this. I was holding a little later, but I want to talk about that, you know, extracting the political teeth, which is a great way of putting it. And what I would call more simply, because I'm not as eloquent as that writer, the co-option, like how do these movements and moments like a Black Lives Matter as the sort of protest that we see that Colin Kaepernick launched, like how do they manage to get so co-opted by the very forces that are against them, right so singing the lift every voice and sing at the beginning of NFL games does not reflect on the issues that Colin Kaepernick was trying to raise by his protest, much less the larger racist history of labor within the NFL. So there's like they're not looking at the social things and they're not even looking at the their terrible record in race science, in you know concussion protocols their lack of movement for black coaches and general managers just a host of things how do we fight back against that type of co-option
1: i mean i think tr- truth is our only weapon against that and calling it out is our only weapon against that and you know encouraging players to call it out as well because some players have said all of this NFL putting end racism in the end zone singing lift every voice and sing it doesn't change the fact that Colin Kaepernick is without a job and continues to be so Continues to live in this pariah status with regards to the National Football League. So they're getting away with Expelling somebody because they exercised basic freedom of speech in the National Anthem in a respectful manner that was meant to raise awareness about police violence Aimed at the black community, so all of this, I think, speaks to what we talked about before, which is you—you th- you try to throw Colin Kaepernick down the memory hole. You try to turn him into a ghost story to frighten present players to say, oh, you don't want to be too outspoken. You don't want to end up like Colin Kaepernick." While at the same time trying to co-opt the symbology of it, or co-opting uh, players who do who were sympathetic to Kaepernick and see it as an and saw him as a. Harbinger of social change by throwing some money at them and saying, "Here, you're now the Players' Coalition. Go off and uh, you know have meetings with police officers and talk about how you're, you know, making substantive change." Like these things, although the Players' Coalition has done some good work, I don't want to throw too much uh, castigate it too much. But that was one of the tactics of the NFL because Colin Kaepernick was ex- so explosive because he represented. Not a race question in the NFL, but a labor question in the NFL. You know, the NFL is 77% African American. I should say 77% Black, because not all the Black players are from America at this point. And so Colin Kaepernick represented the exposure of how racist the NFL actually is that it's Black labor, Black bodies getting concussions. No black ownership. This is why Michael Bennett said to me that the NFL is a segregated operation. You know, it's not integrated, it is a Jim Crow operation because it's segregated between those who play and those who own, those whose playing careers last three and a half years, and those who have generational wealth. Colin Kaepernick represented such an explicit challenge to the power of ownership, which feared what Kaepernick was doing for two reasons one, profit margin, they don't want to repel. Uh, white fans or right-wing fans. Second, uh, it's not just about profit motive. Second is that he's pushing back against the politics of ownership. you look at you know where they put their political money. you look at their politics. you know there are a lot of racist franchise owners in the National Football League. that's why they don't hire black general managers or black coaches. absolutely that's why they flagrantly violate the Rooney rule. I mean it's so flagrant that it's breathtaking. Yeah, And if you understand that, then the expulsion of Colin Kaepernick, I think, makes a lot more sense. Now, ESPN, how do they benefit from this? I mean, they benefit from it because they are a 24-hour monster. And the monster has to feed at all times. And it will feed on these athletes. It's also a broadcast partner with the National Football League. National Football League is responsible for a lot of the profits that roll through ESPN. And so their politics are going to be warped, are going to be distorted. Uh, We've seen in recent years the way they've gotten rid of their more political anchors. I should say left-wing political anchors, anti-racist political anchors. They love the other side. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, they'll cultivate that. And it's uh, kind of gross. I mean, I was just on the radio this morning talking about um, Stephen A. Smith. Yeah. And... I'll tell you, what I found most offensive was not Stephen A. Smith's comments about Shohei Otani and the Nigerian basketball team, which were objectively offensive. What I found offensive was he made those comments with ESPN graphics, which means it was a planned segment. Yeah, absolutely. And then they get content out of it the whole day of people, Stephen A. apologizing, talking about it on their radio programs getting one of the baseball writers for ESPN who happens to be Asian to deliver a monologue about why he found it offensive. And they put that on the homepage and it's just a game to them. Meanwhile, anti-Asian violence is on the rise. Anti-immigrant sentiment is on the rise. And Stephen A. Smith is feeding that. And yet it's all a big content farm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's no, it's just all things to gin up, Create a controversy for a 24-hour, maybe a little bit longer news cycle, and then you kind of move on to the next segment. And you can feel it. I mean, I I admittedly do not watch as much ESPN as I used to because I don't watch football anymore. Me too. So, you know, football, me and football moved away from each other even before Kaepernick. And I was a a big football fan. NFL Sunday ticket, the whole Thing. would be planning my weekend around football, pro more than, than college. But still, I watch a lot of football. And when I started reading about the concussions and just, again, that was just so rooted in labor to me that you were, you know, you were, mm-hmm. you know, harming these players all in the interest of profit. And there was nothing you were willing to do absolutely nothing to not only protect current players, but do something for those retired players that were literally killing themselves. And I was like, I can't watch this anymore. I can't be a part of it. And that's so much a part of ESPN's like coverage that moving away from the NFL made it much easier for me to move away from ESPN period. Um, Mm. Then when you throw in the terrible columnists, not so much columnists, but the on-air personalities and just, Bunch of assholes, especially at that time. I know some people have moved on like a Will Kane, but just those t- types, I was like, nah, I can't be around this. <laughs> so, but I want to drill down more into that ownership piece because I think that is the respectability politics that go so hand in hand with sports. Those meritocracy narratives are also the same narratives you see in the larger ownership class of the United States. So, the same gratefulness that you hear people talk about million-dollar athletes is the same thing I see people talking about frontline workers and those who are doing, you know, what they would call like low-intense work, you know, like, oh, you should be just thankful for a job and you should be just thankful that you have, like, your you know, in the middle of a pandemic that the government is willing to give you, like, the bare minimum of sustenance, right? And so I wonder... How much of these sports stories and the way in which politics and society are mitigated through the lens of sports are just a microcosm of the way in which America has chosen to side so clearly with the ownership class to the disadvantage of those who are workers, whether they're wage workers or LeBron James workers?
1: Well, it's interesting because sports is certainly a reflection of our society, a reflection of the values of our society, a reflection of the bigotries in our society. But it's also a shaper of our society. Like it doesn't just reflect, or you could say the reflection itself allows for shaping society. So I always felt like when there was that uh, trillion dollar bailout of Wall Street in 2008, I always felt like the pump was primed for that by a generation of public welfare to create stadiums in cities around the country. The closest thing to an urban policy we had in this country in the 1990s and 2000s was the public funding of stadiums. I and mean, that was pretty much it in that era of Bill Clinton gentrification and the starving of the industrial sector. I mean, what did they do to replace industrial jobs in our cities? Well, stadiums, you know, short-term, low-income, non-union labor. And then, of course, handing over billions of dollars to some of the richest people in society. I always felt like the pump was primed for the Wall Street bailout through the stadium funding. So that shows how sports can be a shaper of society. Similarly, the narrative about you should be grateful to work, gratitude narrative, I think, has been shaped dramatically by sports and weaponized against As you said, all workers, you certainly heard that about teachers during the pandemic, you know, ridiculous disgusting. My wife's a teacher. So that, that hits close to home over here.
0: It's very much in that shut up and dribble,
1: right? Like that's shut up and teach.
0: Yeah. Shut up and teach. Don't worry about the circumstances under which you're doing it, but just do it.
1: (laughs) Exactly. No, exactly. So that's it in broad strokes. Like I think and also that when we fight to make the sports world a little bit more just, it can also have a ripple effect in the real world, in the broader world, like a labor victory in the world of sports. Or Colin Kaepernick raising the issue of racism and police brutality in the world of sports. It's a great amplifier to what's happening in the society. And I think and this is one of the arguments I make in my book, The Kaepernick Effect, is that that I believe that. The bridge between Colin Kaepernick taking that knee, which was in 2016, August of 2016, and the protests in the summer of 2020, which were the largest set of protests in the history of the United States. Like that bridge in between them was largely filled by young athletes, high school, college, even junior high. Taking a knee to protest police brutality in cities large and small, in states red and blue, in areas rural and urban, all across the country, you know, you see this. And that's really what I explored with the book is like I interviewed a ton of people and asked them why they took a knee and what the repercussions were. And it was just fascinating given the geographical diversity of what had been taking place, how similar some of their motivations were.
0: And, you know, that's a perfect way to, to get more into the stories that you illuminate in the book. And as you said, there is this bridge and there's also that bigger tradition where we started the conversation. Did you get a sense as you talk to different people and you mentioned, you know, you talk about this disparity of the level of the athlete, the place in which they're doing this, the sports that they're doing? It was so widespread mm-hmm. and I wanted to get a sense from you. Did they, in your mind, did they feel the sense of the moment? And did they feel the sense of the tradition that even extended beyond Colin Kaepernick?
1: Yes, they got the moment perfectly. The tradition, in most cases, was something they learned in the aftermath when people commented about them taking a knee. See, for them, Colin Kaepernick taking that knee provided them with a language to protest. They're like, oh, we can protest as athletes. Oh, we can protest during the anthem. Because the end goal is trying to eradicate racialized police violence. And for them, and this is what the right has never understood, taking, the, and a lot of liberals too, taking that knee is a means to an end. It is a protest. It's not an end in and of itself. You know, like they think, oh, you're kneeling because you hate America, because you hate the flag, and that kneeling is your end. That's your protest. And it's like, no, the kneeling is to start the conversations, to start the demonstrations, to start uncomfortable dialogues in communities that ranged from the people I spoke to, majority black communities, to overwhelmingly white communities. And it was like trying to start those conversations in different contexts. And so that was the push. And then afterwards, people said to them, like teachers, hey, you look like Tommy Smith or John Carlos out there. And then they're like, who? and then going back and, and learning that. And that's where, you know, we, you mentioned before about 1988 and the better and worse about not having the internet. Oftentimes, I think we were better off to not have the internet. You know, we had Chuck D instead. That was enough internet for me. him was enough internet for me. But what these young folks then able to go to the internet and put in the words athlete activist to look up Tommy Smith and John Carlos, it's like they all got crash courses that they were now part of a tradition. But can I tell you the one yeah, common factor it, that really affected me? Cause you know, I, I'm, I'm much older than, than these young people. Like I'm, I'm interviewing over the, Oh, during COVID I'm interviewing over the phone, people 16, 17 years old. That's how old my daughter is for goodness sake. So, yeah. you know, there, there's an age difference at play. And what struck me so much was no matter who I was talking to, almost all of them, when I asked them, what motivated you to do this? When did you start thinking about this? They didn't say Colin Kaepernick, they said Trayvon Martin. Mm. And it made me realize in a way that I didn't before that Trayvon Martin is really this young generation's Emmett Till. Yeah, Like for them, seeing Trayvon Martin killed by George Zimmerman and then not receiving justice, it's not the murder, it's getting off for the murder that becomes so scarring for these young folks. Like, wow, we are that disposable in this society. I mean, to them was an Emmett Till-like reaction, the same way Muhammad Ali said he first started thinking about racism in the world because Emmett Till's face looked so much like his own, is very similar. And you got, my goodness, the amount of people in the Black Freedom Struggle who said Emmett Till was what had them start thinking about what they needed to do. Very similar with these young folks in Trayvon Martin.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I keep coming back to this notion of our bodies because athletes of all types, of all genders, of all persuasions, are really putting their bodies on the line in what they do, right? It's, a, it's more than likely a physical activity. And when you see someone like a Trayvon Martin lose his life, it's this control of society in your body to a certain extent. And it makes me think about these recent conversations we're seeing around particularly Black women's bodies in the Olympics. It seems like this is such a part of the playbook. And maybe what you're experiencing as you interview these people is that same sense that there's not control over their life in a way, control over what they're doing as an extension of these larger societal issues. So I'm I'm wondering how much Of that, are you feeling in these conversations, that sense of agency um, when you talk to these young people and they see the sports and society kind of reflect on one another?
1: No question about it, because we've got to remember, too, like the people I spoke to, one of the great differences in talking to all of them was the differences in support they got from the coaching staffs, particularly the head coaches in their sport. And Sports, we have to remember, particularly youth sports, is an authoritarian enterprise. Yeah, there's the occasional coach who does things in a different kind of a way. But broadly, good coaches, bad coaches, shoot, I coach youth basketball. It's an authoritarian enterprise. You don't say some of you run. You say all of you run. You know, that's the nature of it. Trying to teach young people how to play like a team, like herding cats sometimes. Now, we could argue that that's a, a grand reflection of capitalism, exploitation, hierarchy. Yeah, maybe it is. It, it's also, it's, it's the nature of the beast in many respects. So for these young people to take a knee, they're not just rebelling against society or against racism. They're rebelling against the very structure of what they've been raised to think youth sports are. And that, for a lot of them, was very, very powerful that for them was a moment that they'll never forget. And
0: it teaches you a a different lesson as well, right? Like as as much as, like you mentioned, there is a a lesson in the, the team dynamic and the conformity, there is also a lesson when you have to stand on principle that is beyond what some of those other lessons are there to teach you. And I think that is often the challenge that even within a team dynamic, you have to sometimes stand out on your own. And Mm -hmm. to the point about support, whether there was support for some of these young people or lack of support for some of those young people, like what did you find was where it led? Was there more support or was there less support generally speaking?
1: Oh, great question. I mean, the variance is too high to draw broader conclusions. Some of it is affected by whether you're doing it in Seattle, Washington, or Beaumont, Texas. You, know, you get a very different reaction. Some of it depended on uh, whether or not their parents offered them support. In some cases, parents were taking a knee in the stand with their children, you know, and, tra- and, and braving some of the same catcalls and booing and intensity that their kids had to deal with some cases, the coach supported them and then stabbed them in the back. In other cases, the coach was against them, but then after they saw what happened, said, you know what? You taught me something. I'm sorry. In one case, this one athlete, she was castigated by her coach when she did it in 2018. And then in 2020, after the police murder of George Floyd, the coach sends this young athlete a long apology, saying, I didn't understand it then. I understand it now. That apology was not taken very well because it's like, you should have understood it then was the response, which I certainly do not blame them for saying, given that 2018, there were also a lot of horrors. You just didn't have the biggest movement in history responding to it. So that's the general state of things, as I would say. The variance of support was, was is pretty intense and based on a lot of factors. So it's interesting. It's like there's some things that are very similar, like the Trayvon Martin, like the sense of agency, like this idea of Kaepernick providing them a language in which to speak out, like the idea of seeing sports as a place to speak out precisely because neoliberalism has so hollowed out our institutions that it's in a lot of small towns. That is the public square Yeah, is you go to the football game, you go to the basketball game, you go to the volleyball game. That is the public square. So a lot of interesting things going on there, I guess, is what I'm trying to say.
0: And, you know, the support mechanism also makes me think about like the larger sports leagues, right, where how many coaches and general managers come out and make statements beyond the platitudes about some, and some won't even do that, but I think about how a Steve Kerr or a Greg Popovich, like whenever they say something that is in line with a more progressive perspective, more directly in support of Black Lives Matter or athlete protests, it always makes the rounds on Twitter, right? Like everyone retweets it and talks about it. And I wonder why there doesn't seem to be more support and who also gets the support, right? Like our Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich, they've had outside success as coaches. They're also both white males. Would it be the same situation for a Black coach to go out there and be as outspoken. There's a lot of things rolling around in that statement and question, but I'm curious your thoughts on that type of support and who gets to do it versus others when it comes to the professional side of things.
1: Well, it's interesting. I have a lot of respect for Megan Rapino. I interviewed mm-hmm. her for the book. I think her taking a knee when she did right after Kaepernick was really brave. I think her statements about... The place of white people in the movement has also been very courageous and sensitive. But there's an objective reality, too. And that's Megan Rapino becoming a rebel actually burnished her reputation. It increased some of her commercial opportunities. It increased her fan base. And it's hard not to look at that or look at Popovich and Kerr and think, wow, being black, <laughs> there really are different rules Yeah, when it comes to speaking about these issues I mean, it's just a a different set of rules. It's a different set of responses. Ironically, one of the reasons why I think there's an obligation for white people to speak out is precisely because there are a lot of racist white people who are only going to listen to other white people. And that's reason enough to speak out. At the same time, we have to recognize and understand that it's a serious problem that a white person and a black person can say the same thing And the black person gets kicked out of the NFL and has to deal with death threats for the rest of his life. And the white person actually sees their reputation burnished. I think it's an exposure of racism in this country.
0: You know, when you talk to these young people and, you know, the book is filled with these stories and you talk about how there's this gateway that they Kaepernick leads them to other athletes, other moments where their voices can be heard and they have examples of that type of leadership. And it made me think about that memory hole concept that you brought up at the beginning of the conversation. And I think about another athlete like Craig Hodges and, you know, you interviewed him for Haymarket and, and, you know, I watched that. And it made me think about how, you know, you can have this multi hour long 10 or 12 hour long documentary on Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, and all of those things. And as a Nick fan, that was incredibly hard for me to watch and revisit. Mm-hmm. But putting that to, to aside for a second, someone like Craig Hodges has disappeared from that. Like I, I'm sure he might be in it in one moment or another, but not that much.
1: <laughs> well, I think the couple of times he is in it actually exposes how incredibly sinful it is that they kept him out of it. First of all, they should have interviewed Craig Hodges. He should have been part of that documentary. The fact that they didn't approach him is really, really abhorrent. Second of all, the couple of times he makes it on screen, it's, it's when Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant are having rough times their rookie year, getting knocked on their ass every which way but loose. And when they show those clips... Who's the person lifting them up, whispering in their ear, patting them on the back? It's Craig Hodges. Yeah. He was a leader in that locker room the way Michael Jordan could never be. And yet he was erased from the history. It was shameful.
0: Yeah. And he was important player. <laughs> like, you know, yes. who, that dude hit part of the rotation. That dude hit big shots, you know, and and at his and in that moment in history, he's one of the best three-point shooters in the league. Like Craig Hodges was not a scrub, right? And how do we resist and fight back against the memory holes, right? If you can have, like I said, 10 to 12 hours where this dude who played an intricate part of this championship run is erased, how do we prevent that from happening to all of those voices that are not the biggest voices, right? Like you mentioned Tommy Smith and, you know, John Carlos, they are immortalized in terms of the iconography of that moment, but yet many people don't know their names or they don't know what significant sacrifice that was to do that in 1968 in the Olympics.
1: Yeah. There was an effort to memory hole them. It failed. And that's something to rejoice. And they almost succeeded in memory holing. These two amazing people, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. I'm sorry, Phil, what was the question? Like, how do we avoid memory? How do we avoid that? How do we avoid? Well, I got to tell you that that's the reason why I wrote My, my first motivation for writing the book was exactly that. Like, I started working on this book before the police murder of George Floyd and the demonstrations that that and the subsequent demonstrations sort of changed my whole thesis my whole motivation before then and this received a lot of resistance from a lot of people in the book industry was these kids are going to get memory hold the fact that they did all this over the course of years is going to get memory hold this is almost like the stereotype of who gets memory hold young black men and women boys and girls small communities minimal media coverage, they're going to get memory hold. So the point of writing the book was just to make a extremely humble contribution to that not happening. Like, you know, maybe only a thousand people will buy this book, but it's going to exist right here. You know, this is their story. And it still may only sell a thousand copies, but that was the motivation. Then after the police murder, George Floyd, after the demonstrations, it's like, okay, And especially seeing all the athletes speak out and even go on strike as they did in August of 2020 after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The book took on a a new kind of urgency for me. Um, And I started going back to the people who I'd already interviewed and asking them, are you going to these demonstrations? Are you helping organize these demonstrations? Are you part of what's happening right now? And for most of them, it was, hell yeah. This is what I've been waiting for.
0: Do you see that, Sports only continues to grow. Even in the middle of a pandemic, I make the argument that one of the major motivators to getting people back out into the work um, world beyond just capitalism is, and this is part of capitalism, is sports, right? Like getting fans back in the stands is a major component to the drive toward getting us back to normal. Like what's normal is, a Euro Cup with 50,000 fans at Wembley, right? And that's what we want to see. In your mind, as sports continues to grow, as that pot gets bigger, we now see a, a moment where college athletes for the first time can start to profit from their labor, which is a good thing. But as the commerce trickles down more and more as it should, do you think that will impact the activism On the other side, as some of these younger and younger people might have seemingly more and more to lose commercially.
1: That's interesting. That's a an unanswered political question. You just asked because you know, like the college rules, for example, are kind of warped. I Mm -hmm. mean, the name, image, and likeness thing means that yeah, you can go out and do a commercial for the local car dealership, and that's great. You know, you could appear in a charity calendar that maybe would have gotten you suspended. That's great, but what's not great is the billions and billions of dollars that come in through the TV deals is still not seen by the athletes. Yeah, you know That needs to be confronted. And so who knows how that's going to be confronted in the years to come. So there's the potential, at least on the collegiate front, for actually more struggle, and maybe winning name, image, and likeness rights will actually put some wind in people's sails and give them a sense of confidence moving forward.
0: Yeah, I also wanted to think about a little bit of this idea of the gender disparity in the way some of these conversations have happened. You mentioned LeBron James at the beginning of the show, and and this is not a knock on LeBron James and his activism, which I do believe to be sincere. But I also look at, for example, the activism and political and social movements of WNBA and their players and the cohesion in, in their teams to often making very... Clear and outsized social declarations that I think the NBA pales in comparison to what the WNBA does. Are you no question? Are you seeing those types of gender differences as you interviewed folks in the book? Did you feel that like women athletes, girl athletes were taking an outside leadership role as compared to their male and boy counterparts? Was that something that you? didn't quite find, like, what do you kind of think about that from a gender perspective?
1: I don't know. I made an effort to get gender balance in the book. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. Like, I think definitely more young women reached out to me than young men when word got out that I was doing this. Mm -hmm. That's interesting in and of itself. But, you know, I didn't see a grand difference on that front. But I mean, what you're talking about with the WNBA, one of the reasons I mentioned LeBron before was his level of fame is so intense, it's able to provide space for other folks. And I don't think anybody has filled that space, not LeBron, certainly. LeBron hasn't filled the the space he created quite like the WNBA athlete. And what they were able to do in Georgia, certainly it's a story that's been much told, but they deserve a lot of credit for turning Reverend Raphael Warnock into a national name. People knew. And of course, the Senate has tipped because of it. Now, What the Democrats are going to do with the Senate majority is a whole separate show. Yeah. (laughs) But what they're not going to do with it is a whole separate show. We started with a little bit of that
0: off mic, and you're right, that would be an entire another
1: segment. (laughs) Yeah, but it's only to say, I mean, props to the WNBA and the athletes I've interviewed a lot in the recent months, and their ability to rep who they are is so different than when the WNBA first started back in, I believe it was 1996, where it was very much like we need to conform to what we think men want to see Mm -hmm. on the court. It's a such a different ball game by now. And that's to the credit of the players. Absolutely. You
0: know, there's a lot more honesty on the court than there was back in those early days when the league was just starting. I want to get into the final two segments of the show off the dome and the drop. But before we do that, sure. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of give your soapbox on what you think this book will do for young athletes and really for anyone who who picks it up. I know facetiously far more than a thousand people are going to buy this book, because I think your work really cuts across intersections that People are talking about and trying to make these connections and you help make those connections clear. And what I think the book really illuminates is that this isn't just, you know, the protests and the movement is not just something that's happening in big cities. It's not just happening on large stages. It's happening, like you said, all around the country in communities big and small in states that you wouldn't think are housing these moments. They're having them. So now that the book is done, it's set to be released in September. What's the long tail of this conversation beyond the memorializing of these young people's sacrifice and their perspective?
1: I mean, the long tail is about the big picture is about contested space and us viewing the athletic field as contested space. That's something we haven't seen in this country since the 1960s. And even then, uh, it, it was a few amazing instances, but not at all at the grassroots level, like we've seen um, in recent years. And I think that's what I wanted people to take away from it is that like, don't just read the individual stories in the book. Like the sum is greater than the parts put together. And the sum of it is, you know, there is a generational divide right now in the world of sports where these young athletes feel like, Hey, you know, I built this platform. I want to use it to say something. You know, if my body is going to be out there on the line, and if you're going to cheer for me, you better care what I have to say, which is a sentiment that John Carlos said words to that effect in 1968. I believe he said, if I'm good enough to cheer for, then you need, then I'm good enough to listen to. And, I think these athletes are now saying that with the volume turned up to 11. Yeah, I,
0: I can echo that generational divide. And we're seeing so much of that when you talked about, um, when you referenced Giancarlo, I had to flash back to the recent Euro Cup and just the, at the, you know, by the time people are listening to this, it was what happened a couple of weeks ago. But clearly, what the English national team, went through losing on penalties to Italy. And then the three Black players that were involved in the penalty kicks that missed were just deluged with racist, just bullshit online. And it just went on and on and on. And it, it one, connects to just how universal these stories are. They're global stories when it comes to racism and sports and how these things are acted out on stages. But addition to that, it very much embodied that idea that if you're gonna root for me, you should care what I have to say. And you don't often see that level of support for athletes once things go another way. When you lose, the racism reveals itself,
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) which is unfortunate. But I think the long tail legacy of this book is gonna really highlight that this is a significant moment and it's important to capture it. And we're only at the beginning of where these young people's activism is going to take them. So I applaud you doing that long work. Thank you. And that grueling work to get this out into the world. With that said, I want to get to the final two segments of the show. First one being Off the Dome, where I just ask quick rapid fire questions and get your first reaction. As I mentioned, you know, I'm I'm a fan of your work and I follow you on Twitter. And one of the things I enjoy are the pop culture conversations. And so getting a chance to like weigh in on different actors and just, that sort of fun stuff can lighten Twitter, <laughs> which can yep. feel like a very heavy space. So some of these questions have that light. Some of them are sports related. And so my first one is one I'm sure you've argued with any number of people, fans and um, friends, fans and and likewise. If you're starting an NBA team and you could pick any player from any era, who's your first player you pick?
1: Oh, it's LeBron James. Because he can guard all five positions, he's statistically the best clutch player to ever live, even though he's never given credit for that. And he made an All Star out of Mo Williams. <laughs> that third
0: point—that you should lead with that point. <laughs> oh no, a, no! No no! That, that's a heavy lift.
1: <laughs> I can't end with that point. That I mean, I can't begin with that point. I got to end with it because that's the closer. <laughs> that's the. Cl-
0: Closer. <laughs> you made an all-star out of Mo Williams. That's a heavy, heavy lift. Yeah, um, No arguments there from me. You can have one buddy cop pair, Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte in 48 Hours, or Danny Glover and Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. And not excusing what we know about Mel Gibson and as being a racist asshole. So just talking about their on-air personalities.
1: All right, so you're talking like which duo had better chemistry or are you talking about who would I more trust to solve a caper? Who
0: who would you more trust to solve a caper?
1: Oh, there's a new sheriff in town and his name is Reggie Hammond. (laughs) How can I not trust like prime Eddie Murphy to do whatever he wants to do in the early 1980s? I would have trusted Eddie Murphy to take me to the moon (laughs) in 1982 i mean there was nothing that man could not do except for pluto nash that was not a good movie (laughs) but that but that was that was post yeah that that was post. you know he had a short window he's like the gale sayers of acting it was a short window (laughs) but anybody who saw him and particularly anyone who was alive at the time knows how transcendent he was so early 80s eddie murphy in a wash. And, you know, I'm probably a DL Nick Nolte fan. He's done his thing over the years. Yeah. Nick Nolte. Rich man, poor man. Yeah. Nick Nolte's
0: um, stealthy. You know, he he has a long tail, you know, grumpy coach and blue chips. Oh my God.
1: (laughs) So much from Nick Nolte. (laughs) So much Uh, from Nick Nolte. Yeah. People should see the movie Affliction with Nick Nolte and James Coburn, which is a very tough watch, but you see why Nick Nolte gets his respect. Oh, okay. That's like a drop
0: before the drop. So we're going to throw that in there too. Oh, my bad. No, it's all good. The show is sprinkled with drops, believe me. Okay, my third one is you're casting for your perfect crime noir thriller. Who's your first cast and why?
1: Uh, Living or dead? Or you want me to go with who's around now?
0: Who's around now?
1: Let's keep it to like who's kind of around now. I would go, this is, gonna. I don't care if this dates me. I'm going to go with Linda Fiorentino, the star of the film The Last Seduction, which is one of the great noirs of the last 30 years. I mean, she looks like she could talk you into murdering her aged spouse and leave you (laughs) in prison, and you'd thank her afterwards. (laughs) That is a deep one. Oh, Oh, yeah. And no hesitation either. As soon as you asked the question, I was like, Oh, it's Linda Fiorentino. That's awesome.
0: And my final off the dome, you can go to one sporting event in the world at the highest level that you choose. What would that
1: sporting event be? Oh my goodness gracious. So you're talking like in 2021, I can go to anything.
0: Yeah, you can choose... whatever you think would be like, this is the thing I want to see. And, you know, when I say any level, like some people want, think like that just means like a luxury experience, but it doesn't have to be right. Like it depends on the thing. So I'm trying to keep it. Like you can experience any sporting event at your highest level. Indiana state
1: championships in basketball. Really? Yeah. I mean, come on. Nothing is more intense than high school basketball. Uh, I don't care if it's men's. I don't care if it's women's, the stands are packed. The bleachers are overflowing onto the court. The intensity is off the absolute page. The fans go to school with the players. There's an intimate connection there. And you know, I said Indiana, but I don't think Indiana even does what I used to love them for. So put Indiana in quotes. But what they were always famous for, and this is the movie Hoosiers is kind of based around this, is it's an open state championship. And it would just be like, if you were the best high school, it didn't matter what kind of school you were. You're thrown into this tournament. Oh, okay. Now everything is like you know, divisioned and marked out, and you know you've got your independent schools and Catholic school. I mean, it's just you know this was Indiana used to do it hardcore, and uh, so if it could be the Indiana State Championship the way it was meant to be, that's I think where I would go. Oh,
0: that's awesome! You've given me really great answers and ones that I would not have thought. (laughs) Well. All right. So perfect setup for us to get into the drop. And again, the drop can be anything. Intellectual morsel, as we like to call them, something that we want to recommend that our listeners check out. So I have a drop. I'm assuming you have one ready to go. There can be more than
1: one, but you know, I always
0: say one. You want me to go first or do you want to go first?
1: Well, since I'm not entirely sure what's being asked of me, I'm going to have you go first.
0: Okay. My
1: drop is
0: a record from a group. I was listening to this as I was on a long road trip and I was reflecting on a, a band, they never quite blew, like I thought they were gonna blow, but a band called Under the Influence of Giants and their first and only record, it is available on Spotify, is just a great listen for like pop rock music at a very particular moment. Very kind of dance, very, had a lot of soul. It was just a, a really feel good record and getting a chance to kind of listen to that in full, Reminded me of a band that I thought could have been the next big thing, but never quite made it, but still released a really, really strong album. So I want to recommend that folks check out a band called Under the Influence of Giants. And that's my drop.
1: It's a great one. I mean, mine, I'll I'll just see. That's why I wanted to hear you first, because I'll go in the same vein as you. There was a rapper who did not break through about 20 years ago. I thought he was going to be huge. His name is Don Scavone. And Google his name, Don Scavone, on YouTube. Uh, You can at least hear one of his songs, Willie on Glock. And listen to Willie on Glock and tell me this guy shouldn't have been something. So shout out to Don Scavone. Shout out to Willie on Glock. That would be my drop.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Dave, I want to thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. This was... Like I said at the beginning, a conversation I was really looking forward to, you know, at your work with Haymarket, with The Nation, with supporting real progressive politics and social movements beyond sports, in sports and beyond sports is just really, really important. And, you know, I'm really thankful that you were able to join me, I know you got a lot going on and I want to send all the support and love to you and your family, and thanks again for being with me on The
1: Deep Dive. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you, brother.
0: You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via @farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.